The title of this evening's talk <clears throat> is Metta, the Heart's Release. And we'll begin with uh, some words from the Buddha. It is in this way that we must train ourselves by liberation of the self through love. We will develop love. We will practice it. We will make it both a way and a basis. Take our stand upon it, store it up, and thoroughly set it going. The Buddha Dhamma, the teachings and the practices, are about transforming the heart, transforming the mind. This evening we'll consider one of the important teachings and practices of this transformation, which is classically called a Brahma-vihara, translating as a divine abiding. The radiant warmth and openness of metta, unconditional loving-kindness and appreciation, acceptance, unconditional friendship, the experience of connection and appreciation that isn't fraught with clinging, attachment, and not even necessarily a sense of obligation. This unconditional quality of mind and heart arises quite naturally when our mindful attention penetrates the layer of conditioning that shuts us down to others. It's also quite important to recognize that this capacity of metta, when it's present, is present when concentration and mindfulness are able to begin penetrating the layers of conditioning that keep one from connecting with one's own bodily and mental experience with clarity and kindness. So beginning with an old story. It's said that the Buddha first taught metta to a group of 500 monks who went into a a particular and seemingly very congenial forest for their three-month rainy season retreat, a forest that was adjacent to a village of very strong supporters who offered to build 500 huts for the monks to stay in during this rains retreat and who also were quite happy to keep the monks' alms bowls filled during this practice period. And so the monks moved in, and they began to practice insight meditation, vipassana. It's said that the unseen beings, the forest dweller, devas, who lived there, became uh, fearful of the monks and actually felt quite put out of their home when they saw that the monks were in fact 
weren't just visiting the forest for a day or two. It seemed that they were going to be staying longer. So these forest-dwelling beings began to create all kinds of frightening sounds and sights and emit some very uh, distasteful odors, hoping that this would um, make the monks leave what they considered to be their forest. And soon enough, the monks became quite terrified, which broke their samadhi, broke their concentration, and it disrupted their mindfulness. Some of them even developed fever and pain, dizziness, in conjunction with the fear that they were experiencing. And all of them felt that it was just impossible to continue practicing where they were. So they went to where the Buddha was staying, and they related their tale to the Buddha. And the Buddha responded like this. He said, My beloved monks, go back exactly to the same forest and practice your meditation there. And the monks responded to the Buddha, to his words pleading with him that they not be sent back to that forest, (coughs) saying that it was impossible to practice there. And the Buddha's response was then, Dear monks, because you went to practice meditation without a weapon of protection, you've encouraged many distractions and many difficulties. This time, however, I'll give you a, a true weapon of protection. And it's said that it was at this point that the Buddha offered them the metta teaching and practice. Out of their great respect for the Buddha, the monks didn't dare contradict his wishes. And so, armed with the metta teaching and practice, they went back to that same forest. And for a while, they continued experiencing some degree of feelings of fear and anxiety. While at the same time, they very diligently and very virtuously practiced metta. And soon, there were no more frightful sights, no more frightful sounds, no more distasteful odors. And whereas the devas had previously uh, been hostile towards the monks, their anger and their resentment disappeared when they began to feel the monks' metta. And in fact, feelings of respect and uh, welcome and even reverence began to be the deva's experience. Along with this sense of really feeling connected, like with family. And the inclination arose with the devas to provide an environment of safety, to protect the monks from particular dangers that lurked in the forest, such as tigers and poisonous snakes, so that these monks could practice their meditation peacefully. After recovering and strengthening and deepening their concentration and open-hearted presence through practicing metta, it's said that the 
all of the 500 monks at some point began practicing vipassana and samatha meditation again with metta as their foundation. And it's said that because they were able to practice meditation calmly and peacefully, that all of them, every one of them, became arahants, became fully enlightened beings during that particular rainy season retreat. So the great strength of a mind, a heart, protected through the energy of metta. This quality, this capacity to stay present and connect with a heart that's fearless, with a heart, a mind free of ill will. Gandhi called it the most powerful and most subtle force in the universe. Metta is the energy that allows for beings to connect. It's the energy that keeps it all together. This, and this capacity is called for again and again throughout our practice, throughout our life. The practice and the energetic experience of metta is offered and felt as a very natural, heartfelt wish directed towards oneself, another particular person, or a group of beings, wishing oneself and others to be happy, to be at ease, to be safe and secure, to be at peace. In the process of developing expanding and deepening this energy of the heart, one of the things that we begin to taste is that our own wants, our own preferences, begin to pale. They're, of course, important on one level. But within the incredible, radiant energy of warmth, that begins to flow from the heart in the process of cultivating unconditional friendship and acceptance, unconditional kindness and love. Our personal wants and preferences begin to lose their usual intensity of almost always being very front and center. Sometimes my experience of metta, of human kindness, is like the sunshine, that warmth of the sun that permeates our outer and our inner sense of being. We could say that the practice of loving kindness is akin to letting the sun warm our heart warm our whole being, and then at some point radiating this quality out to the world around us. So where does the capacity to connect, 
to cultivate, to live with unconditional friendship, unconditional acceptance and kindness. Where does it come from? It comes from our own experiences of kindness. The experience of receiving kindness from others. It comes from our own experiences of receiving warmth, of receiving love that's been given to us freely from another. If you had never in your whole life experienced this unconditional kindness, you would have an extremely difficult time with this practice, with any practice really. But such people are really very, very rare. Every one of us in this room has experienced at least some kindness given to us, some love, some warmth given to us freely. So a very simple, ordinary, personal example. A few days before this retreat began, when I was still home in Taos, New Mexico, where I live, I walked into the post office to pick up the mail. And someone opened the door for me. And I had, didn't know this person. I'd never seen them before. And we looked directly at each other and smiled. And I thanked her. And I felt a really warm connection come up between us. Just that, very simple, ordinary experience. That's unconditional kindness. And each of us, of course, have experienced kindness with people that we know and with people that we're close to. Very likely kindness expressed with a much more overt, stronger energy, that unconditional warmth of loving kindness. This is where the seeds come from. These are the seeds that are planted planted in us, that we cultivate. The kindness that we've been given is the kindness that we grow, that we water and fertilize, that we cultivate by giving metta to ourselves through offering and through offering it out to others. It's a circle. It's, <clears throat> it's like a transmission We've been given the transmission through the kindness offered to us from others. And we grow it. We cultivate it. And we give it out. Offering the transmission back out again and again and again. It's this essential and very beautiful circle. The kindness that we receive and the kindness that we give. It's always a gift. Every instance of unconditional loving kindness given to us involves people giving us their time, their care, their support, some way their help. 
unconditional kindness given freely, it's a choice, a very natural choice that others make and that we make. And it has an effect on us. It has an effect on others. Metta is really the ground, the bed, so to say, that all of the other immeasurable capacities of heart spring from. And in relationship to our discussion this evening, the other three divine abidings. Compassion, in Pali the word is karuna. Appreciative or empathetic joy, the Pali word is mudita. And equanimity, that was spoken about a little bit last night, upeka. It's also the capacity of heart and of mind that allows the whole breadth of our meditation practice to unfold. To unfold both from and into. Metta is what engenders the qualities of open-heartedness, acceptance, kindness, patience. With each and all of these qualities being any very essential ground for us throughout the practice and the process of liberation. When I was in China in 1986, I found out that the contemporary Chinese written character for love was developed out of two ancient pictographs or symbols. The top symbol was a very simple one representing a person breathing, a symbol for breath. And the bottom symbol was one for the heart. So based in ancient Chinese pictographic writing, the character for metta-love is breath through the heart. With the cultivation of metta, we're moving towards, or we're inviting the opening, the expansion of the heart, the mind. And continuing with this metaphor of breath, Metta is like the experience of breath moving through us. It's intangible, boundless, empty. Where from? Where to? And yet it's a very powerful energy that moves within us and from us. So what is it? In the texts, it's often spoke of as non-ill will, the absence of ill will in relationship to ourself, meaning the absence of ill will in relationship to all of the phenomena of one's body and mind, however it's manifesting moment to moment to moment, and the absence of ill will towards others. So, no aversion in any direction, meaning no comparing ourselves in relationship to others, and no self-depreciation 
no conceit, no pride, and no judgment or depreciation of others. The absence of ill will in all directions. Here in retreat, how often might any of you have thought that the, well, the person next to us is, uh, or maybe over on the other side of the room, how often might we think that their practice is so much better than mine? Or maybe the comparing mind says, that person isn't practicing nearly as well as I am. So that felt judgment, that inner judgment, they're better than me. And maybe it goes as far as, I'm no good, or, or maybe I'm great. No sleepiness, no movement. Just look at that person over there, kind of nodding and restless and moving around. Well, obviously this is not metta. We're creating, in fact, a separation. Me, other. The heart, the mind is contracted. And this is uncomfortable. We mindfully recognize and acknowledge that this too is part of our practice. And we learn that one way to attend to the suffering of separation, the ache of self-centeredness, is to offer oneself metta and also to offer the other person in the equation metta. One of the most surprising aspects of metta, and maybe striking aspects really, and and maybe surprising as well, is that metta is impersonal in nature. Even in relationship to what we think of as our self, what we're identified with and attached to, either in a positive way or in a critical way, as our self. Our body, our thoughts, our ideas, our opinions, our skills, our knowledge. Metta is impersonal in nature in relationship to other beings as well. A heart-mind filled with metta has the capacity to impartially embrace all beings. Not only those that we're close to in our lives those that it's easy to care about, those who might be useful or amusing or maybe pleasing to us. A heart-mind that's filled with metta holds the possibility of a capacity for what can be called immeasurable impartiality. This capacity to be able to connect and care for any being all beings. And some words from Krishnamurti's meditation journal. Meditation is one of the most extraordinary things. It's not an intellectual affair. 
But when the mind enters into the heart, the mind has quite a different quality. It is really then limitless. It's in a sense, it's a sense of living in a vast space where you are part of everything. Meditation is the movement of love, he said. It isn't the movement, it isn't the love of the one or of the many. It's like water that anyone can drink out of any jar, whether golden or earthenware. It's inexhaustible. And he says, you must begin without knowing anything about it and move from innocence to innocence. The mind, the heart of metta, connects and accepts. It's non-critical, non-judgmental. Metta has no interest in comparing or fixing. It allows things to be as they are, with an inner sense of well-being, patience and acceptance. Consequently, metta and aversion can't exist simultaneously. As you're practicing here in the very specific ways that each of you are, essentially cultivating and developing a concentrated clarity of attention, as well as cultivating and strengthening a clear mindfulness. Some of you may also be working a bit with the practice of metta in relationship to its purifying and healing aspects. And with this, you're also learning, at least to some degree, that metta practice also aids the development of our capacity for a clear, deep, and strong, concentrated, mindful attention. As our capacity for metta grows and blossoms, there's an unwinding, an unbinding of the heart and mind from states of fear, states of anger, states of judgment, states of separation, disconnection. These strong, afflictive energies that move through the mind, the heart, and the body begin to unwind, begin to weaken, to fade, and even eventually potentially dissolve under the strong medicine of the heart of metta, concentration, and mindfulness. Someone once asked the great Indian spiritual teacher Nisargadatta Maharaj, who taught through dialogue with his students. A student, once, once, a student once asked him, what can make me love? And his response was, you are love when you're not afraid. You are love when you're not afraid. Something that was amazing and quite important to me when I 
began to discover it, is that metta doesn't really necessarily depend on initially liking someone or approving of them. It actually has nothing to do with approving of. With the heart of metta, we're able to connect with beings beneath what we might not agree with or connect with beings who may act in ways that we might not like or might even not condone. Metta is acceptance on a very deep, universal level, but not necessarily approving. There aren't any favorites, no favoring one over another with metta. So it's not divisive. Metta is a unifying energy. It brings things together. It's goodwill towards all beings, all sentient beings, this most subtle and most powerful energy in the universe. And so from this we can actually begin then to understand that it's impersonal in nature and that it's unconditional. No conditions needing to be met for metta to manifest. So reflecting for just a moment, if there was no metta in this world, the world would have flown apart, broken apart long ago. There have been periods throughout our human history up until this very moment when there has been more or less metta manifesting in the world. More peaceful times, times of relative ease in the world and periods when the world has been or is increasingly unsettled, more violent times. This powerful energy of goodwill that unifies, that brings things together, so essentially necessary. The writer Dina Mitzger had this to say, There are those who set fire to the world. We are in danger. There's no time to go slowly. There's no time not to love. And the Buddha said it so perfectly. He said, hatred can never cease by hatred. Only through love alone can healing happen. This is a universal law. If metta is the ground the basis and the impetus of our thoughts, our words, and our actions, if this is what our thoughts, words, and actions spring from, if our motivations and our intentions spring from the heart of metta, the karma that's created will be wholesome and healing, both personally and in ways beyond our own small lives even in ways that we may never, ever know.
I'd like now to spend a few moments exploring some expectations that we might have, uh, we might think that the experience of metta is supposed to be. I think that many of us expect metta to be uh, a feeling, some very familiar felt sense. And of course our expectation is based on something that we're already familiar with. It's impossible to expect or look for something that we don't know, something that we've never experienced. Or to look for something that, in fact, we may have experienced, but didn't label or didn't really know as unconditional loving-kindness, unconditional friendship, metta, that we didn't know that that's what the experience was. Sometimes metta can and it does uh, manifest as a very familiar felt sense. But we can get caught. We can actually get stuck expecting this. It's limiting. Metta is not sentimental. It's not romantic. These are both totally conditional experiences. And metta isn't even necessarily a particularly juicy feeling. The heart, the mind, that's free from ill will, free from greed, fear, hatred, anger, in any given moment, is the mind of stillness, the heart of peacefulness. In this absence of greed, in the absence of aversion, it's in the abiding stillness and peace that metta arises. And it may not be a feeling that we think of or are familiar with as love. There's a great power and great strength in the capacity to connect within ourself and in relationship to others directly, clearly, patiently, and fearlessly with a mind, with a heart that's free of ill will. We could say that this is metta, this unfettered, unconditional connection. And it's not so easy. There are many layers of conditioning that need to be seen, seen through, we could say, and let go of along the way of our practice. I found over the years that the qualities of honesty and humility are essential if practice is to, be, is to continue to unfold, reaping its most amazing and freeing benefits. There's a beautiful story in the Anguttara Nikaya, the, one of the collections of the Buddha's teachings. It's the story of Sariputta's lion's roar that really demonstrates this very clearly. Sariputta was one of the Buddha's 
uh, two chief disciples, and he was foremost in terms of discernment and wisdom next to the Buddha. And the story takes place just after the completion of the three-month rainy season retreat. And the monks were beginning to disperse for their various duties and various responsibilities in other places. So I'd like to share this uh, sutta with you. And some of you may never have heard one of the uh, uh, suttas. It's quite interesting to uh, hear how these have been given. I'm going to give it, uh, offer it as it was given. As far as we know, it's a few thousand years ago. <laughs> and there's some prelude to it, some explanation. On one occasion, the Blessed One, as the Buddha is called in the teachings, was dwelling in Savati at Jetta's Grove at Anathapindika's monastery. At that time, the Venerable Sariputta approached the Blessed One, and having paid homage to him, he sat down to one side and said, Lord, that's what the disciples, as far as we know, called the Buddha, Lord, I have now completed the rains retreat at Savati, and I wish to leave for a country journey. And the Buddha replied, Sariputta, you may go whenever you're ready. And then the venerable Sariputta rose from his seat, and he bowed to the Buddha, keeping him to his right, and departed. Soon after this, uh, uh, soon after the venerable Sariputta had left, one monk spoke to the Buddha, saying, The Venerable Sariputta hit me and has left on his journey without an apology. Well, right away, the Buddha called another monk and said, Go, monk, and call the Venerable Sariputta, saying, The Master calls you, Sariputta. The monk did as he was bidden, and the Venerable Sariputta responded, saying, Yes, friend. Then Venerable Mahamogalana and Venerable Ananda these were uh, the other two very close disciples of the Buddha, went around to all of the monks' lodgings and said, Come, reverend sirs, come. For today, the Venerable Sariputta will utter his lion's roar in the presence of the Blessed One. The Venerable Sariputta approached the Buddha and after bowing to him, sat down to one side. And when he was seated, the Buddha said, One of your fellow monks here has complained that you hit him and left on your journey without an apology. And the Venerable Sariputta responded, Lord, I remember the discourse that you gave 12 years ago to Bhikkhu Rahula. Rahula, who was a monk, was the Buddha's son. I remember the, course that you, the discourse you gave to Bhikkhu Rahula 12 years ago when he was 18 years old. You taught him to contemplate the nature of earth, water, fire, and air in order to nourish and develop the virtues of love, compassion, joy, and equanimity. Although your teaching was directed toward Rahula, I also learned from it, and I have practiced and observed that teaching. And then Sariputta goes on. Lord, I have practiced mindfulness and loving-kindness, 
one who does not practice mindfulness of the body in the body, of the actions of the body in the actions of the body, and is not present, may well hit a fellow monk and leave without an apology. Lord, I have practice to be like the earth. Whether people throw clean substances such as flowers, perfume, or fresh milk upon the earth, or foul, unclean substances like dung, urine, spittle, pus, and blood, yet for all that, the earth has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like the earth, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. Lord, I practice mindfulness and loving kindness. One who does not practice mindfulness of the body in the body and is not present may well hit a fellow monk and leave without an apology. But it's not my way to be rude to a fellow monk. Hit him and walk on without apologizing. Lord, I have practiced to be like the water. People use water to wash things clean and unclean, things soiled with dung, urine, spittle, pus, and blood. And yet for all that, the water has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like water, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. A monk who does not practice mindfulness, who does not practice becoming like water, might hit a fellow monk and go on his way without saying, I'm sorry, I am not such a monk. Lord, I have practiced to be more like fire. Fire burns things pure and impure, the beautiful as well as the distasteful. And yet for all that, the fire has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like fire, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. A monk who does not practice mindfulness of seeing, hearing, thinking, might hit a fellow monk and go on without apologizing, Lord, I am not such a monk. Lord, I have practiced to be like the air. The air blows over things clean and and unclean and carries all smells, pleasing and unpleasing. And yet for all that, the air has no revulsion, loathing or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like the air, vast, exalted, measureless, without hostility and without ill will. Lord, I have practiced mindfulness of the body in the body, the movement of the body in the movement of the body, the positions of the body in the positions of the body, the feelings in the feelings, and the mind in the mind. One who does not practice mindfulness might hit a fellow monk and go on without apologizing. I'm not such a monk. Lord, just as an untouchable boy or girl, begging vessel in hand, clad in rags, enters the village with a humble heart, even so, Lord, do I dwell 
with a heart that is humble, vast and exalted and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. I have practiced and learned every day. A monk who does not practice loving kindness and mindfulness might hit a fellow monk and go on without apologizing. Lord, I am not such a monk. And Sariputta continued to deliver his lion's roar. And at one point, the accusing monk rose from his seat and arranged his upper robe over one shoulder and with his head on the ground bowed at the feet of the Buddha, saying, Lord, I committed an offense when I was so foolish, jealous, angry, and unskillful. I accused Venerable Sariputta falsely, wrongly, and untruthfully. Let the Blessed One in the Sangha accept my admission of the offense and pardon me, and I shall practice restraint in the future. And the Buddha responded to this monk, saying, Truly, monk, you committed an offense when you were so foolish, jealous, angry, and unskillful that you accused Sariputta falsely, wrongly, and untruthfully. But as you have recognized your offense and make amends, we pardon you. It's a sign of growth when one recognizes one's offense, makes amends, and in the future practices restraint. And then the Buddha turned to Venerable Sariputta, saying, Forgive this foolish man, Sariputta, before his head splits in seven pieces on this very spot. And Sariputta responded to the Buddha, I shall forgive him, Lord, if this revered monk also asks for my pardon, as I may not have been skillful enough and created some misunderstanding. May he, too, forgive me. And then Sariputta and the accusing monk bowed three times to each other and reconciled. Metta is really one of the best medicines, a very powerful medicine. Our human heart is intuitively, naturally loving. Connection and kindness are absolutely natural human capacities. And we see this in the smallest children. I was feeding one of my granddaughters when she was seven months old, giving her pieces of banana. And she took one of the pieces from me that I had in my hand, and she took it from me and put it in my mouth with a big smile erupting on her face as she proceeded to feed me a very innocent and really very pure expression of the heart of kindness. A while ago I read a book that was about and by a 102-year-old black man whose name was George Dawson. He grew up on his family's farm in East Texas, and he was the grandson of slaves. At the age of eight, George had to go to work to help support the family 
So he never attended school and he never learned how to read until the age of 98 when he decided to attend a literacy program. He learned to read at the age of 98 and then he wrote a book about himself. And it's really an amazing, inspiring, and illuminating book. George describes how he learned to read the world and survive in it. So I'd like to read a little bit of this book with you. At one point, George is having a conversation with Richard. Richard is the man who helped George write the book. And they're talking together about George, who, at the age of 101, was still living alone. And as George says, doing just fine. And this is Richard speaking. You're not really alone. People call and come by all day long. There's a community of people that cares about you. You live by yourself, but no, you're not alone. George, that's right. You figured that out. Yes, it's nice that people stop by like they do, but they do, they do that because they want to. I have nothing to give them, but they always feel better when they leave. Richard, that sounds like a riddle. George, it does, doesn't it? I'll tell you the answer for that. All my life, I've been good to people. All those years, every person I met, I've treated with respect. People do the same for me. Richard, what goes around comes around. George, that's right. It all comes back, everything you do. Sometimes it might take a while, that's all. I tell people not to worry about things, not to worry about their lives. Things will be all right. People need to hear that. Life is good just as it is. There isn't anything I would change about my life. Richard, people worry too much? George, that's right. Be happy. Be happy for what you have. Help somebody instead of worrying. It'll make a person feel better. It's good to be generous. It doesn't take much to make a difference. Even the poorest person can just take the time to say hello. That can be a help. Have some sympathy for someone's hard luck story. It's not about money. Give what you can, and if you have nothing, at least pray for somebody. Have good thoughts. So the cultivation of metta, the practice of metta, is metta itself. As an example of the stability and the beauty, really, of a heart-mind steeped in kind-heartedness. I'd like to continue a bit more with our 102-year-old bodhisattva, George Dawson. For much of his life, George endured a very pervasive racism and segregation in the South because he grew up in East Texas. And during the time that he grew up there, East Texas had the highest rate of lynchings in any state of the Union. And actually this book begins when George was eight years old 
and he was witnessing the lynching of a teenage boy who was his hero. When George was 65, he was doing yard work for a woman who had left his lunch on the back porch with her dogs. And this is George speaking. She didn't see me from the shadow of the tree, but I watched as she put down two bowls on the floor for some dogs, and another she set up on the shelf above the reach of the dogs. I climbed up on the porch and lifted the bowl off the shelf. It looked good, and as hungry as I was, it smelled even better. I was looking for a chair to sit in and a quiet place to say grace. When I looked down and saw the dogs eating the same food that was there for me on the shelf, there wasn't such a surprise in that. People didn't buy dog food in the sack like they do now. Dogs mostly ate the leftovers from the table. But what hit me was that she expected that I would eat out on the porch with the dogs. I didn't have to eat in their dining room, but back in their kitchen would have been all right. I told myself that I was good enough to eat a meal with people, not dogs. So I set the bowl back on the shelf, being hungry. That wasn't so easy. I knew she didn't plan to insult me. She just didn't know better. Still, she could believe what she wanted. And I, but I wasn't an animal, and I wasn't going to eat with dogs. If I did, she would go on believing that way, and maybe she would have been right. Late in the afternoon, she came by. Didn't you see the lunch on the porch? I nodded. I saw the dogs on the porch. Well, the lunch on the shelf was for you. It was a good lunch. Thank you, I'm sure it was. It's just that I don't eat with dogs. As I said that, I looked her straight in the eye. And I could tell she understood what I meant. She got angry and red in the face. But I didn't turn away. I didn't look down. I eat with people. I'm a human being. At my words, her face tightened and her look changed to meanness and anger. From her mother and father and back through her grandparents, I could see a hundred years of anger and fear coming out towards me. I stood up to it and repeated, I'm a human being. She was so angry she couldn't speak. I waited, and finally, in a cold tone, she said, You don't need to come back anymore. I said, That's right, I don't need to. And then George goes on to say, I figure you can't hate someone for what they think and do, but you can hate yourself for the unacceptable ways you react to it. In the transformation, the opening into the greatness of heart, there's a great letting go, a release, a relinquishment of much of what we've held onto, much of what we've grasped often very tightly. 
There's a great release of the contractions of the heart, the past pains, the hurts, the anguish that we've taken in and taken on as mine, as me, as I am. It's not so easy to relinquish this, this conditioning, these habitual patterns of our self. But this is what binds the heart. This is what binds the mind. Our commitment to our practice, our willingness to take the journey, is what affords the transformation. And it's not so easy at times, but it's very, very well worth it. There's a tremendous fullness of energy, which is constituted by great confidence, strength, and a very clear straightforwardness that comes from a loving heart, that comes from the heart of metta. In closing the talk, I'd like to share a story with you about a young Native American woman. It's a true story, whose name was Sue Ann Big Crow. Sue Ann was born on March 15, 1974, on the Pine Ridge Reservation. And she grew up with her sisters on the reservation in her mother's three-bedroom home. Sue Ann's mother, Chick Big Crow, was known to be quite a strict mother. Her daughters always had to be in the house or in the yard by the time the streetlights went on. And the only after-school activities that she let them take part in were structured and chaperoned kinds unsupervised wandering, and then later on uh, cruising around in cars were completely out. So Anne said that she and her sisters had to come up with their own fun because their mother wouldn't let them socialize outside of school. Chick Big Crow was strongly anti-drug and alcohol, belonging to the small but very adamant minority on the reservation that takes this stance. When Sue Ann was nine years old, she was staying with her godmother on New Year's Eve when the woman's teenage son came home drunk and shot himself in the chest. The woman was too distraught to do anything, so Sue Ann called the ambulance and the police and cared for her godmother until other grown-ups arrived. And maybe it's because of this incident that Sue Ann became as opposed to drug and alcohol as her mother was. She gave talks on the subject to school and youth groups, and she even made a video urging her message. Raul Bradford, a former Pine Ridge teacher and coach who was a good friend of the Big Crow family, was once asked whether Sue Ann's public advocacy of this issue wasn't risky, given the prominence of alcohol in the life of the reservation. You have to understand, Raul said, Sue Ann didn't respond to peer pressure. Sue Ann was peer pressure. She was the backbone of any group she was in, and she was way wiser than her years. As strongly as Sue Ann's mother 
forbade certain activities. She encouraged her daughters in sports. At one time or another, they did them all. Cross-country running and track, volleyball, cheerleading, softball, basketball. When Sue Ann was in the fifth grade, she heard somewhere that to improve your dribbling, you should bounce a basketball a thousand times a day with each hand. And she performed this daily exercise very faithfully on the cement floor of the patio. And her mother and sister getting quite (coughs) tired of the sound. So for variety, she would uh, shoot layups against the gutter and the drain pipe until they came loose from the house and then had to be repaired. Some people who live in cities and towns near Indian reservations treat their Indian neighbors decently. Some don't. Some people in South Dakota hate Indians unapologetically, and they'll tell you why. In their voices, you can hear a particular American meanness that's centuries old. When teams from Pine Ridge play non-Indian teams, the question is always there. When Pine Ridge is the visiting team, usually the hosts are courteous and the players and the fans are, have a pretty good time. But Pine Ridge coaches know that occasionally at away games, their kids will be insulted, their fans will feel unwelcome, the host gym will be dense with hostility, and the referees will call fouls on the Indian players every chance they get. Sometimes in a game between Indian and non-Indian teams, the difference in race becomes an important and distracting part of the event. One place where Pine Ridge teams used to get harassed regularly was in the high school gymnasium in Leed, South Dakota. In the fall of 1988, the Pine Ridge Lady Thorpes went to Leed to play a basketball game. And Sue Ann at that time was a full member of the team. She was a freshman, 14 years old. Getting ready in the locker room, the Pine Ridge girls could hear the din from the Leed fans. They were yelling fake Indian war cries. The usual plan for the pregame warm-up was for the visiting team to run onto the court in a line, take a lap or two around the floor, and then shoot some baskets, and then go to their bench at courtside. And after that, the home team would come out and do the same. And then the game would begin. Usually, the Lady Thorpes lined up for their entry more or less according to height, which meant that the senior, Donnie DeCorey, one of the tallest, would go first. As the team was waiting in the hallway leading from the locker room, the heckling got louder and louder. And some of the fans were waving food stamps, a reference to the reservation receiving aid, federal aid. Others were yelling, where's the cheese? The joke being that if Indians were lining up, it must be to get commodity cheese. The lead high school band had joined in with fake Indian drumming and a fake Indian tune. Donnie DeCorey looked out the door and told her teammates, I can't handle this. Sue Ann quickly offered to go first in her place. And she was so eager that Donnie became suspicious 
She said, don't embarrass us. And Sue Ann said, I won't. I won't embarrass you. So Donnie gave her the ball, and Sue Ann stood first in line. She came running onto the court, dribbling the basketball, with her teammates running behind. On the court, the noise was deafening. Sue Ann went right down the middle and suddenly stopped when she got to center court. Her teammates teammates were taken by surprise, and some of them bumped into each other. Coach Zamiga, who was at the rear of the line, didn't know why they'd stopped. Sue Ann turned to Donnie DeCorey and tossed her the ball. And then she stepped into the jump ball circle at center court, facing the lead fans. She unbuttoned her warm-up jacket, took it off, and draped it over her shoulders and began to do the Lakota shawl dance. Sue Ann knew all of the traditional dances. She had competed in many powwows as a little girl. And the dance that she chose was a young woman's dance, graceful and modest and show-offy all at the same time. I couldn't believe it. She was powwowing like get down, Donnie DeCorey recalls. And then Sue Ann started to sing. And she began to sing in Lakota, swaying back and forth in the jump ball circle, doing the shawl dance and using her warm-up jacket for a shawl. And the crowd went completely silent. All that stuff, the lead fans were yelling. It was like she reversed it somehow, a teammate said. And in the sudden quiet, all you could hear was her Lakota song. Then Sue Ann dropped her jacket, took the ball from Donnie DeCorey, and ran a lap around the court, dribbling very expertly and very fast. And the audience began to cheer and applaud. She sprinted to the basket and went up in the air and laid the ball through the hoop. And the fans were cheering very loudly now. And of course, Pine Ridge went on to win the game. The person who transmitted this story said that he couldn't find evidence of a single act as elegant, as generous, or as transcendent as Sue Ann's dance at center court in the gym at Leed. And I agree. This was Sue Ann's lion's roar. And a little poem from Hafiz. He calls it, The Sun Never Says. It really relates to the story we just heard. Even after all this time, the sun never says to the earth, you owe me. Look at what happens with a love like that. It lights up 
the whole sky. There's a fullness of energy and a confident way to walk our human path when the feeling of loving-kindness is strong. The Buddha called this tremendous fullness of energy the lion's roar. He said that when he himself spoke, it was like the lion's roar in the jungle because the power behind his words were born out of loving care and great compassion. The real results of practice often come as a surprise. You encounter a difficult situation and do what seems to come naturally. And then after the fact, you realize that you handled the situation very differently from the way you used to. the natural, effortless expression of a clearly focused, mindful awareness, loving-kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity is the true result. At the time you do what seems perfectly natural, it's no big deal, you might say, to a friend who asks how you were able to stay present and do what needed to be done. But it is a big deal because the natural expression of these qualities changes your life and changes the lives of everyone you encounter. In closing the talk with Two poems. The first by Mary Oliver. It's part of a poem by Mary Oliver. What I loved in the beginning, I think, was mostly myself. Never mind that I had to, since somebody had to. That was many years ago. Since then, I have gone out from my confinements, through with difficulty. I mean, the ones that thought to rule my heart, I cast them out, I put them on the mush pile. There'll be nourishment somehow. Everything is nourishment somehow or other. I have become the child of the clouds and of hope. I have become the friend of the enemy, whoever that is. I have become older, and cherishing what I have learned, I have become younger. And what do I risk to tell you this, which is all I know? Love yourself, then forget it, then love the world. And lastly, a valentine that I received from a student uh, a few years ago. And at the top of this valentine was a a circle, oh, about that big, red 
round circle, bright red, and the letters inside of it, the circle said, this is love. And these are the words that were underneath that. Take this tiny label, stick it on your dining table, stick it on your favorite book, stick it where you always look, stick it on some brand new shoes, stick it on the evening news, stick it on a broken heart, stick it on a hospice chart, stick it on a violin, stick it on your thinnest skin, stick it on a long lost friend, stick it on a bill to send. Stick it on your desk or wall. Use it on a conference call. Stick it on a microphone. Feel it when you're all alone. Put it on a mirror, yes. See it when your hair's a mess. Stick it on the Congress floor. Stick it on the White House door. Stick it on the other side. Stick it where it cannot hide. Can you see love everywhere? We hope we can. We hope we dare. And let's sit quietly for just a moment. Thank you for listening to the Dhamma.